Another Danilchuk has been creating a war diary since the early days of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia in 2022. She aims to tell the truth about Ukraine and Russia's brutal war, cutting through the noise and propaganda. Anna is passionate about the beauty and independence of her country and communicates this powerfully in her videos in a clear and honest way. And for those of you who are regular on the channels, you'll know that this is now a regular monthly conversation that we record. Uh, some of the strongest voices Voices, uh, we're having more frequent conversations with, including Anna uh, and Operator Stask as well, uh, and some of your favourites on the channel. And I think this is absolutely critical at this time to put Ukraine front and centre when the mainstream media are paying less attention. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. If you enjoy the material we create and you like our incredible speakers, please do like and make sure you are subscribed. Also, do leave a comment as this really is effective now in the YouTube algorithm. And also check out the Ukrainian charities, which we now put in the description of every video. Buy Anna a coffee to help her incredible work. And once you've done all of that, uh, only then consider perhaps uh, getting me one as well. Anna, welcome back. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much for an honor to be a part of your beautiful community, because it is really strong and it's an honor to talk to you and to all the beautiful people who watch us. Well, no, it's fantastic. I mean, you and all the other fantastic guests, the reason people turn up, it's not me. Uh, and so it's great to, to have you back. And we're going to have a bit of a freeform conversation today because I think so much has happened since we last spoke. And that was only a month ago. That was uh, we spoke on Christmas Eve um, and uh, that was broadcast on Christmas Day, which was a very, very special uh, experience sort of doing that. Um, but it's a month later and an incredible amount has happened, including absolutely horrific strikes. Uh, against Ukraine, uh, Christmas, New Year, uh, and in the last week, we've seen uh, really brutal attacks on Kharkiv and uh, on Kiev as well. Um, I mean, what is the, what is what is your sense of what the Russians are doing here? Because there's no strategic purpose, and we know that Ukrainians are hardly likely to just jump up and say, oh, okay, we've had enough of this now. Uh, we're happy to be good little Russians. And uh, yeah, no, we get the point now. Um, what, what do you think is going on here? Thank you so much. And, you know, um, I was actually surprised to realize that it is only a month after we've talked because during this month, so many happened. And thank you, by the way, for summarizing it. And it is definitely something that uh, is lacking on uh, global media, because if you sum up a month, a week in Ukraine, analyzing Russian war, you can actually see a lot. And um, that is why I uh, think it's extremely important to demonstrate things that happen both in Ukraine and now in Russian Federation. You are totally right. Uh, during Christmas and this month, there were lots of useless, brutal, violent attacks on civilian infrastructure and Ukrainian people in many cities. Yesterday it was Kyiv, Kharkiv, Dnipro, Sumy, and uh, many more. There are regions in Ukraine where air raid alert is never out, and it lasts like since the 20, uh, <clears throat> 2022. And uh, it is uh, important, first of all, what message Russia sends us by uh, doing these attacks. It does not achieve anything, and contrary to uh, small but effective Ukrainian efforts, they do not destroy military infrastructure, they destroy schools, apartment buildings, and they simply try to terrorize and violate and uh, frighten people. But of course, after two years, if they were smart enough, they'd see we will not uh, give up or surrender. Because an important message for those who advise us to say like, oh, we are little Russians, let us live this poor life, but without bombings. Uh, no, uh, like if the war stops on Russian conditions, killings will continue. People will continue dying just as they were in Kherson when it was occupied. And uh, when Ukrainian soldiers entered the city or villages that were previously occupied, they were constantly find, uh, finding um, many people we executed in the cellars in extremely uh, 
torturing like conditions with their hands uh, tied behind their backs and other stuff. So that's what they were doing. And uh, at the start of the invasion, they had lists of people they will execute first, second and third to help them build a Russian administration there. Because once again, you see that we are very different from the civilizational perspective and our values are different. So no one would accept it smoothly. And this will mean more and more deaths. And by the way, so many people went uh, to the front lines as volunteers, not only because they are brave, of course they are, and they are heroic, but also because they understand if they we do not stop Russia, there will be more deaths than on front lines. Another important thing that Russia loves doing it during various holidays and important things, and most importantly, uh, holidays that are like capped by all the country and that are Christian in nature. And here I would like to attract attention of those who doubt maybe Russia and Ruski Mir is spreading something good, focusing on uh, Christian values, saying that uh, traditional values are important and so on. Look how they interpret the values, uh, killing children during Christmas. What messages are they sending? I would say they are diabolic, if there is such an adjective. And if hell exists, it's now, it has an embassy in Russia. And uh, this is also a very visible uh, message. And uh, we see that actually Russia does the contrary to what those sympathizers from outside uh, focus on. Like <clears throat> Christian values, no, we bomb, we kill, um, then uh, attitude to uh, indigenous peoples and various small uh, peoples in Russia. Uh, they mainly send them to front lines. Uh, thus, in this very um, Hitler style, solving the problem of Russian peoples uh, that are not uh, good for Ruskimir because they come from totally different backgrounds, from totally different religions, languages, appearance, and so on. And Russia is actually very chauvinistic and nationalistic and racist. And it's so wrong to think that it's just different. Uh, it's weird how they can, <clears throat> like anyway, uh, Nazi Germany was also saving the world, right? Uh, so that's exactly how Russia saves the world now. That's right. And uh, we'll come to a minute because there's an extraordinary video of a young man in Russia who was contemplating going to the army as a as a contractor and some of the things he said, which is sort of extraordinary. But let's stay on the minorities question, because I think this is this is an area where there's a lot of uh, hope, wishful thinking as well. Um, and that is the idea that the, the Russia will collapse as an entity and that the uh, indigenous people will play a critical role in that. And there's interesting stuff that's happened since we last spoke and actually quite unexpected. And I've listened to some some interesting commentators on, on Ukrainian TV really uh, dissecting this. And that is the mass protest in Bashkortostan, which is sort of quite unexpected in terms of the scale, uh, given that it's a, a very remote region of Russia, given that traditionally... Actually, many of these indigenous peoples have been completely Russified. You know, their indigenous cultures have been wiped out. And what vestiges of it remain are simply used as a kind of almost like a cartoon version of that, you know, uh, to put on stage or for people to sort of laugh at or, you know. Um, but as a, as a core thing, their cultural identity has been effectively wiped out by the Russian Empire, and then very effectively, of course, by the Soviet Union. Many of them were, you know, their their uh, their lifestyles and their ways of living were destroyed, and they were forced into apartment blocks and cities, um, etc., and obviously educated within the Russian system. Obviously, we have the hope, many Ukrainians have the hope, that Russia will collapse and the indigenous peoples will rise up and be part of that process. Speaking to... I would say some of the uh, more realistic of the Russian opposition, they might wish for that. Well, we know there's a big portion of the Russian opposition who don't wish for that, don't even think about it, and actually don't want it because they want a continuation of empire. But there are a couple who might actually welcome that kind of collapse. But they realistically say, look, the 
the identities have been too far erased for that to happen. And yet in Bashkortistan, we see quite a quite an organized protest. And actually people turned up, picketed the town hall. They overwhelmed the security forces that were there, which is a very unusual phenomenon in Russia. And they actually had a series of demands. So they'd organized enough to, to actually put forward some kind of a program. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are here. We, we, you know, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I think the best thing for Russia is for it to not collapse because that suggests a violent process. Um, I don't think that's actually what would happen, but to to disintegrate, to come apart and be rebuilt in a in a different manner. But how realistic is that? Uh -huh. uh, thank you so much for this really good question. And what makes me feel better is that uh, just two years ago, this would be an issue never discussed anywhere. And here it comes, at least to our minds, which proves it can come into reality. Um, when I think about that, and I've been thinking about that for two years already, and maybe before that, because we like learn more about Russian history in Ukraine. Um, the thing is that I have adopted two uh, terms that are more correct when talking about the collapse of Russia. One is you're totally right. It's the dissolution. It's not the collapse. It's a natural process. And in the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, we've uh, witnessed a dissolution of many empires, and that's a natural process. <clears throat> and another thing that my subscribers have noticed too, uh, I prefer using Russian Federation when talking about uh, the dissolution. Why? Because it's not Russia. It's much larger than Russia. And Russian Federation consists of 22 national republics and many more uh, other autonomous groups and indigenous peoples, more than 100. But 22 national republics. Russia is just one of them. Russia is Moscow, St. Petersburg may even uh, quarrel. They have other arguments sometimes. But I mean, Tatarstan, Dahistan, Chechnya, Bashkorstan, Sakha. They are so, so different from Russia. They have different histories. They have different traditions. They have different backgrounds. They have different values. <clears throat> and uh, I think that many of their uprisings uh, we did not see just because they are too remote from Moscow and they may not feel so connected during this periods of stagnation in Russia. And war is the time that makes it all boil because Putin mobilizes the people, Putin needs more money for war, and this is when these republics feel more of uh, Kremlin. <clears throat> and this could lead to internal uh, protests. When I was preparing, and on the channel I have a video about the potential dissolution of Russia, speaking in detail about some of the largest uh, republics, what people don't know that back in, uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union in 1991, many of them tried and proclaimed independence, like Tatarstan, like Sakha. Uh, also that the majority of Russian natural resources that they used to uh, bribe the world, uh, they don't come from Moscow or surroundings. They don't come from Russia. They come from other republics of Russian Federation, making them poor and giving more money to Moscow-centered oligarchs. And also, I was personally surprised doing, doing this research that Republic of Sakha, which is Yakutia in Russian, inhabited by people who are close to uh, indigenous people of Alaska, um, they the size of Sakha is larger than Argentina, between Argentina and India. Can you imagine? Like, it, And it is a, a country, a republic rich in uh, diamonds, uh, gas, and other stuff. It can actually be that rich as many of oil or gas producing countries, but it is not. It is a depressive region because of Kremlin, because it drinks all of that. So it's not even Russian resources. These are resources of very different cultures. And what is also bad, and you've noticed that beautifully, what Russia and Soviet Union did for huh, centuries, uh, they were mocking the cultures of uh, their uh, peoples that were under their occupation or suppression. They were making people laugh 
their own language, their own traditions. Uh, they were uh, forcefully changing the identity. And so that if you want a career, if you want respect, you have to be Russian. <clears throat> and there are decades in history of Soviet Union where we see unrealistic switches. Like 10 years ago, you had like 80% of people of Belarus, let's say, population in the city. And then in 10 years, only 20. Such processes, they don't happen. Uh, without wars, I don't know, or uh, forceful evacuation. How do you say it? Uh but deportations. So uh, I feel very bad when I look at the interviews of people in Belarus, for example, and they ask, do you speak Belarus? And they say, no, we don't. And uh, they have actually crossed this dangerous, um, dangerously low percentage of people who speak Belarus. There's like 5% or something. And language is reaching extinction level because, you know, there has to be at least 25% speaking it. And when they are asked, why don't you speak Belarus? And I like this language. I can understand it. It's closer to Ukrainian than Russian, an important fact. They say, because it sounds funny. Because it's funny. And they start laughing at their own words, the words of their grandparents, great-grandparents. Are there any funny languages? No. No, there are no funny languages, but that's what Russia made them believe. And for them, the only possible expression of... A nation is to dance, uh, but what Kremlin allows you in the school curriculum or something. Um, they also did that with Ukrainian language by saying this is a language of songs. And it seems like a compliment. But in Russian uh, meaning, it uh, is that your language is really old, no new words, no terminology, no business. So you can use it when singing for a New Year party somewhere in Moscow, but it's not valid for serious communication. And that's a tragedy. And that's what so many beautiful, democratic, tolerant nations do not want to focus on. Because if they focus on that, they would definitely help and support lots of movements inside uh, Russia for the Russian Federation, for the liberation of these cultures and the right for them to practice and return back to their cultural identity. Uh, don't be so selfish being just afraid of uh, nuclear weapons who will get what? Uh, first of all, Soviet Union collapsed and like Russia got the nuclear weapons. Uh, we will be able to control, somehow influence these processes, negotiate with these new leaders. You know, I had one person, I'm, I'm finishing a really long talk, but I had one person telling me, oh, aren't you afraid that like <clears throat> after the dissolution of Russia, Kadyrov, who is the president of Chechnya, will get control over nuclear weapons? No, because after the dissolution of Russia and collapse of Putin's regime, such people as Kadyrov will not be presidents of Chechnya. They'll be gone. They'll be gone. It'll yeah. be like uh, it'll be a little bit like Levin Tiberia after Stalin. You know, there's this fear that yeah, another yeah, psychopath yeah. will take charge. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the inner circles, everyone knows they're a psychopath. Everyone knows who these characters are. Everyone knows the blood on their hands and the crimes they've committed. And there'll be people just waiting for that vertical to collapse, just waiting for a moment where they can take plus, their revenge. Plus, just as with Germany in 1945, we have to take on some responsibilities. One comment that made me a bit angry recently was of a person who says, I totally support Ukraine. I totally see the violence and brutality of war, but I will say a bad thought. I will express that we need Putin because uh, if we lose Putin on his place, someone worse will come. First of all, uh, it is just like we'd say back in the 40s, we have to protect Hitler because if he leaves, someone worse will come. Uh, second, guys, I know that uh, in this normal, healthy environment, we do not interfere into other countries' uh, internal things. But here we have an aggressor that threatens the world, bombs independent countries, and is prepared to attack more countries. So we do have to interfere and take on responsibilities. And of course, the next elections and democratization processes inside Russian Federation should involve other 
nations, other international organizations' participation. It's not just like Putin is dead and we're looking, what's happening in this crazy Russia? No, we enter that Russia politically, uh, diplomatically, I don't know, psychiatrically. And it ignores history as well, because Stalin, one of the most terrible characters in all of history of any nation, and even in the dark... national hero of Russia. And now back a national hero again, yes. But... And and unfortunately, when I was there in the 90s, there you could find plenty of people who would, uh, you know, say, well, he wasn't that bad or that's the only way to run this country. Otherwise, it would be chaos. So there's, you know, that that myth finds uh, fertile ground, especially amongst the, the older uh, generation. But to say that someone worse than Putin is inevitable ignores the process of history. Stalin died. And after an internal struggle, we had Khrushchev, who was, despite all his flaws, uh, infinitely more civilized and restrained than Stalin was. Even Brezhnev, compared to Putin, was a paragon of civilization. There were, despite the depths of the Cold War, there were restraints and rules and the ability to sign treaties and actually people more or less stuck to those treaties, um, even when there was so little trust. Also, there was quite extensive trade between East and, and, and West, which is which is fairly ignored, um, quite substantial trade between the Soviet Union and, and even the US. Um, so to say that, 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 that someone worse is inevitable is to actually ignore the fact that, that there has been clear change and improvement possible in history, uh, and that actually Putin is one of the worst incarnations of not only Russian leadership, but Russia as an entity, identity, uh, and the actions it's taking. We are seeing one of the most toxic incarnations of any regime in Russian history. Totally agree with you. And it's just like accepting uh, losing or failure when you say there is nothing we can do. I am very much like sometimes I have this um, bad thoughts that if the world was that passive uh, back in 1940s, just like uh, Hitler would rule. So that's 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 what they want to repeat. I don't know why this attitude has changed and why Putin, his regime is still taken as legitimate. No, Russia is no more legitimate. And um just like, uh, I don't know, <clears throat> thinking that someone worse uh, can come. So just like, I don't know, aliens can destroy the planet. So let's not wait. I th that, it's very important as well, because it also um, these ideas uh, influence how the so-called uh, Russian opposition and activists um, tackle the problem. And if you take the point of view, which we share, I think that Putin is a terrorist, not a world leader. Um, he's sitting uh, atop a, a criminal gang uh, that is looting his own country and his own people, um, uh, and that he has absolutely no electoral legitimacy or any other kind of legitimacy through his actions, through his nuclear terrorism. Um, that means you can have no relationships with such a person, no, the diplomatic, economic, political, none. He should be stripped of all... Um, uh, of those sort of characteristics which you would apply, you know, even to some Timbok dictators in South America and whatever, um, he should be stripped of, of all of those things. Um, and I think what makes it worse is he pretends to be a Democrat as well. There's this extraordinary pretense that somehow he's, he's this thing when actually he's, he's the other thing. Um, unfortunately, you'll know through through various conversations, there, there are many in the West, including uh, decision makers, journalists, and so on, who still have not stripped away that perception of some legitimacy behind the Russian regime, despite all of the evidence, not just of the last two years, but the last 10 years since the invasion of, of Crimea. Um, and I remember, you know, I mean, this is not going to be your favorite person, um, um, but uh, I was talking, I, I, I went to an event where uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, it was about eight years ago, and it was an audience of uh, in the Guardian building, Guardian newspaper building in London, and he was talking to a moderator, and someone asked him, how should we treat 
Russia? How should we treat Putin? And mind you, this is eight years ago, long, long time before the full invasion of Crimea. And back then he was saying, have absolutely nothing to do. Don't buy their fuel. Don't buy their products. Don't uh, allow them into your financial system. Literally cut them off. And he said, because Putin is nothing more than a bandit. And there were sort of gasps in the audience, like, oh, he's gone too far. You know, he's gone too far. How can you say these things? How can you even contemplate these things? I would have thought from where we are right now, everyone should be on a fast track to adopting what Khodorkovsky was saying back then. But it still hasn't happened. And uh, like you can clearly enumerate uh, those red lines that Putin has crossed once again, even without war of Ukraine, war in Ukraine and annexation of Crimea. Even looking at this, I don't know if the word like keeping power, uh, now we have this in Ukrainian, I mean, like uh, you have a president or he's always around or uh, 20 plus years, it's not okay. And uh, he's definitely demonstrating all the symptoms of being a dictator. And um, this means that we have to support everything against dictatorships and look at it as liberations of Russians if you're so much into Russian people. I mean, like those who want something good for Russia, they should focus not on preserving Putin, but liberating Russians from them. And um, you know what is interesting? How the world accepts it all. And when I see like Medvedev who was is a fake president, but at the same time, a substitute of Putin. But he is a president, an ex-president, and we know it's a public figure. And he says such things that would never be acceptable like for anyone. And if like the prime minister of the smallest country in the remote part of like Europe would say something like that, it would be a huge scandal discussed everywhere. And here people say, well, they are just like, like Russians, so they can like kill, they can threaten, but we have to except that no, there are no other rules for Russians in this world than there are for Americans or Ukrainians. And if they break these laws, the world has to unite and the world has to stop it. Uh, because like otherwise, uh, why should we then uh, take criminals who are stealing something from a supermarket? They also and the genocidal a... characteristics. I mean, there are now uh, evidence, clear and substantial evidence that Every criteria of the international uh, sort of legalistic description of genocide, you can make a strong case that pretty much every single one of their criteria have now been met in Putin's full-scale war uh, against awful. Ukraine. Yeah, that's awful, yeah. yeah. And um, honestly, what I think about when we discuss the fading support for Ukraine or something is that uh, if Ukraine like loses the war, um, the whole like democratic world is losing. And I'm not saying it to uh, strengthen your support or something, but uh, this means that everything that Putin does is allowed and <clears throat> being united against it, we failed. So you may not have any doubt that he and regimes like that will continue because there is no reason for them uh, to stop. No reason at all. Why would they? It is not limited to Ukraine. It's not about having some part of our territory. Um, Putin is getting ready for the war with uh, NATO and the Western world. It's real. I don't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. Yes, he has problems moving in Ukraine, of course, but he thinks in five years, in 10 years. What I've also noticed very typical for the democratic leaders inside the country presidents to focus on something that will happen in a year on five years they cannot plan long because they will leave uh, they will be substituted they something will change the country may change and in such dictatorships uh, like russia nothing changes and putin plans for 10 years 20 years so he will not attack the Baltics in 2025, but he can do it in 2030 or not him, but someone else, if that is not punished and he is uh, like on Ukrainian territory. What they try to do on occupied territories, they mobilize people and they make them uh, come and uh, fight for Ruskimir. So do you want to see that 
<clears throat> and of course, the, the 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 first step in in Russian imperial process is not you know the obvious thing to send a vast army in. The first thing they do is create division uh, within that country by siding with you know maybe the opposition or extreme group. So first of all, they use alliances and they they penetrate the uh, political um, environment of that country. You know, with one group siding another, once their opponents or those who are opposed to Russification are destroyed, they'll then find another group and they'll switch sides and then they'll erode the people who helped destroy their main enemies. And so there, there may well be this... Uh, <laughs> remote process of exerting control at the same time we see this in uh, serbia we see it in hungary and it, the process i believe is beginning in uh, in slovakia as well we see these networks building up in bulgaria um apologies to everyone on the channel who doesn't agree with this who may come from those countries i have people in each of those countries who are reliably sending me information about how russia's networks are penetrating their economic political systems um so they'll also use informal networks uh registering businesses uh you know mafia connections uh using all sorts of sort of indirect power and we of course we saw those processes at work through ukraine as well putin didn't invade ukraine when Yanukovych was, uh, you know, in power. He didn't need to because he's able to exert enough control and influence to have Russia's interests protected. It's only when those indirect means really start to fail and be rolled back that that, of course, is when the full scale invasion happened. And, and Maidan, if anything, is a trigger. You know, that is a process not just of Ukrainian liberation, but of de-Russification. Um, at it at its heart. Yes, and um, actually, that was Putin's plan: this silent uh, annexation of Ukraine, just as he did with Belarus. And um, what is also <clears throat> worrisome is that um, I think that such silent annexation is possible after, like, if Ukraine uh, is occupied, it will be possible in other countries that consider themselves strong EU democracies. Because uh, not all countries, and I'm sorry, I'm Ukrainian, are that resilient and that filled uh, with knowledge about Russia and what it is. And unfortunately, I do believe that under this shrewd, cunning techniques, they can manipulate some NATO EU uh, nations into believing uh, Russian narratives. So it is not that all of that war will be military. And I also have uh, lots of... Uh, subscribers who comment Ukrainian resilience from different corners of the world and analyzing their national characters, their priorities or their history during the Second World War, they say, we would have given up. We don't have that strength to do it. We'd focus on minor things uh, like a garden next to your house, but not <clears throat> die for a country. I'm not saying it's 100% uh, sure, but it may be that. Uh, people are not ready for such brutality and evil. Uh, we didn't have long periods of normality because of that constant Russian interference, but those who relaxed, those who lost some of the grasp uh, might be a very easy uh, target. Uh, what is also very naive uh, is how Russia is able to manipulate because sometimes it has allies or partners in different countries like you've mentioned using bribes uh, money manipulation but what they are able to do in one country or even within one country they may get the support of far right and far left which is impossible from this uh, ideological perspective it's impossible to unite far left and far right they are contrary and many of them in different countries agree on the support of Russia. And that's how talented it is in manipulating people's mind and um, playing the game. It does not take politics uh, in other countries seriously. That's also what you have to accept. And yes, if Ukraine loses, US also loses. It, it stops being like, for example, a country that <clears throat> sets the agenda. Russia is them. Let's turn then to this topic about how Ukraine wins, because what has been 
very conspicuously absent from uh, a lot of Western politicians' discourse um, and what's come out of uh, Washington, actually. I've gone back and I've looked at various political speeches over the last two years. The language is inexact. It's, you know, with Ukraine for as long as it takes, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know all the phrases. They yeah, don't do. say what victory is, when it will be achieved, how it will be achieved, what it takes, and when that's going to be provided. So there's all the how questions are left unanswered, and the positive noises that are made are structured in such a way that you don't have to address the how. Um, it's now become to the point where, and I think this point was hit uh, sometime in the autumn of last year, People who are following, you know, Ukraine and what's going on and who are activists, as I class myself, obviously, as one of those, we started to really sort of pick apart that narrative and see a subtext behind it, which is that the US possibly does not want uh, the same victory that Ukraine does, i.e. it does not want to see Russia collapse. It does not want to see Russia beaten to such an extent that it causes convulsions within that country what the u.s seems to be aiming for is a kind of stasis as it were ukraine must survive but not necessarily win that's 100 percent obvious that's 100 percent obvious unfortunately <clears throat> uh i don't know why uh this global leaders are so much afraid of the collapse of russia and not afraid of the survival of this russia why aren't they afraid? Why don't they think about this uh, <clears throat> future with a Russia that gets what it wants? Uh, they do not visualize this version of future. They simply want to return back to 2010, which is impossible. Uh, and uh, it's very obvious from the very start because Ukraine uh, managed to stop Russia and uh, be very effective in getting them out of Ukraine at the beginning of this invasion. And this was exactly the moment to give everything to Ukraine what it needs uh, by investing, not by giving it to a country that does it just for yourself. Believe me, that's for the global security. And also there were some responsibilities taken on when Ukraine uh, was uh, fighting for democratic values or giving up its nuclear potential and weapons. So uh, this was the moment when we were asking and like many of my uh, beautiful friend subscribers says, drip fitting started, like drip fitting when you were giving a little bit of something. And uh, from what I understand analyzing, like it seems that we are given so much, but in reality, the majority of money, they remain in the countries. They are used for rearming of the countries. And what we get is all things that you don't need. But even this all things that you don't need, instead of 100 that we need, we get 10. And then these 10 are discussed for a very long period of time and they are traveling to Ukraine for four months. Uh, we see how North Korea supplies Russia millions of artillery uh, things that they need in a day. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying it's effective. And uh, at that moment, uh, we were able to take them totally out of Ukraine, uh, including Crimea. Uh, what uh, we gave them was this delays and like... Uh, supplies that are enough for two brigades, but not 15. <laughs> uh, we gave them time to build uh, defense lines and mine the territories, which now slow down everything. And they are really good at uh, building these defense lines that are really deep with concrete and other stuff. We have given them this chance. I do not believe that these global leaders did not know this is happening. Uh, that's logical. <clears throat> uh, so, of course, they just don't want this clean and very obvious Ukrainian victory. It feels bad to let Ukraine die because it's not, it's just like too bad and too uh, violent, but at the same time, not to let Ukraine win. 
Um, there is one question that I've read in the morning and it's kind of, I can ask you like as the subscribers, what will they say? It was our Minister of Foreign Affairs um, trying to inspire to give us a Taurus long-range missiles. Dimitr Kuleba, is that? Yeah, Kuleba, yeah. And he was saying like, well, why they have so many conversations, so many discussions. Should we give that? Should we not give that? And he said that like, but it's obvious. Everyone knows we will not target Kremlin with them. Even though it would be just, but like, for these two years, you really well know we will not do that. So why do you pretend that you still discuss? Because what if they do that? But we don't. You already know we don't do it. Don't use it as an argument. Do not pretend that this is a moment that stops you. What stops you is the desire to negotiate with Putin. And I think what is really worse and what is super humiliating for all of these politicians and peoples who support them, that if Putin would say, I want to stop it and I want to talk it. I think like half of these global leaders could have made him, Putin is not that bad. He wanted to negotiate. That's a tragedy of mankind. It is clear. I think Putin has had private communications with Scholz. I have no evidence for this, but he's basically said, okay, you're supplying leopards, you're supplying this, right? That degrades our relationship to a certain level, but... If you provide the long-range munitions that would make a more substantial difference than all conversations about Nord Stream, all conversations about this, that, and the other in the future are mm -hmm. off the table. This is this is what's almost certainly happened. And it doesn't need to be written down. It's it's implied. So who rules then? Putin rules then. And not just uh, uh, like Belarus, but also then lots of EU countries by saying that. Yes, I think. Okay, in case with Orban, it's obvious, and like yeah. Orban is just Pico, a Orban. who simply needs uh, the support. Like dictators, they flock together, and uh, but what are we uh, talking about? So that that's actually quite humiliating for me, yeah. and I always I see that citizens of the countries are uh, stronger and smarter sometimes than those who represent them. The the only. I'd say positive thing is that the UK and and France actually, because they've recently increased their uh, provision of uh, uh, very effective classes of munition that Russia definitely doesn't want to see on the battlefield. It seems that France and the UK are far less worried about the collapse of Russia or all the consequences. I won't even say collapse uh, because Anything could happen there. We don't want to impose a, a particular scenario. Um, but Britain and, and, and France don't seem to be so worried about that. They're more focused on 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 Ukraine uh, and and the potential for victory. A again, it's not expressed in enough detail, but they don't seem to share those same uh, concerns of of Washington and Berlin. The question I want to ask here is. There's a kind of there's 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 an interesting process taking place, and actually, this is a question I put to uh, General Hodges six months ago, so I feel rather smug that this seems now to actually be happening, and uh, there's some predictive power. And what I said is basically, if U.S. military support uh, starts to erode and disappear, which has now happened, it seems clear to me that the U.S. has placed very extensive restrictions on Ukraine in how it fights the war. I think the U.S. has implied to Ukraine that if you want our ongoing support, you need to fight the conventional war, not the unconventional war. You need to strike territory within your legal boundaries and not strike Russia, despite the fact that the logistics routes uh, and the launch sites for Shahids and so on are all on Russian territory. And they've been told not to take the fight with you know, the insurgent uh, liberation battalions that uh, Ilya Panamaryev is, is associated with. They've been told to really tone that down, I think, or, you know, hinted at. Then there's the strikes on Moscow, the drone attack on the on the Kremlin. Uh, you have uh, the Moscow business district was hit. Um, uh, and then you had Sparrow Hills, I think it was, or the, you know, one of the, the, the uh, uh, areas where a lot of Chinovniki live. These are actually incredibly effective. And I think the US has said, ah, uh -uh, no, this is this for us is too much. But that's fine when the U.S. is providing assistance. If U.S. assistance is no longer there, 
it's my belief that Budanov and others in 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 the team are like, well, you know, if we're not going to get this stuff, then those red lines don't count either. And suddenly in the last week, and I'd be fascinated to hear what you think, we've hit the LNG terminal. Uh, I say we, you've you've hit the LNG terminal potentially in St. Petersburg. Other facilities have been hit, very strategic facilities deep inside Russia. I think even there was uh, strikes in uh, Ariol and Tula, which are a huge distance away from Ukraine. I mean, actually remarkable. So whether it's saboteurs or whether it's long-range drones, it feels to me that Ukraine has had some of the restrictions lifted upon it and that we're going to see a lot more unconventional warfare, a lot of hybrid warfare. And actually that is going to be far more effective at delivering a potential victory. I don't mind thinking about it that way. Uh, I honestly do not understand that idea of restrictions at all. Uh, but uh, even if we um, like, I, I, what's the plan then? Like, if we are not allowed to uh, target anything uh, inside Russian Federation, even with Ukrainian weapons, I mean, how were we constructed Neptune missiles or, um, for example, drones that we develop because we do not use the supplies of our allies. We follow the rules like all of this time, even in the most critical moments. So. Uh, what is the plan then? That we simply uh, fight on the territory of Ukraine, destroy everything like Russians come, we kill them. Russians come, we kill them. And that lasts for like a century. Uh, because the resources of Russia in humans and in bad weapons with the supply from China and Northern Korea that the beautiful world is not able to stop. What is the plan? Like we are not touching them. So like, we all we are only allowed to kill those Russians who cross the border of uh, Ukraine and not spoil life in Russia inside. Let people enjoy normal living and do not distract them with everything. What's the plan? What is the plan? It's absurd. It's just like uh, let's not enter uh, Germany. Let's only fight where it is out of. Like I mean, back in the forties, uh, it. Is not, it is impossible to win the war uh, by only destroying Ukraine, sacrificing Ukrainian people and uh, things like that. And uh, what we demonstrate with our drone attacks and other things that Russia is super vulnerable. Russia is super poor, super uh, unprofessional and negligent. And I feel sorry for those who are afraid of it. Uh, because that's exactly what a bully wants. And we very well know that if you turn and look at it, it disappears. It just like a, just like smoke. But uh, it's extraordinary how effective it is. And I, I, I don't uh, I have this message that I uh, share on my channel. War always returns hope. And it is now on its way back to Russia. And this is the process that Putin started. Yesterday, I received a comment that made me angry too after uh, this destruction of an oil and gas terminal. And uh, someone told me like, oh, that might be a reason for Putin uh, to start war with the northern countries. It will not. But guys, it is not just like a victim of family violence looking for the reasons of that violence in herself. No, it is not like, and stop saying that, oh, you have hit the terminal, uh, now Putin will uh, make a revenge on you. No, he attacked Ukraine in 2014 without any reason. They were killing Ukrainians in Soviet Union without any reason just to erase the nation. So it's not, do not treat something that, oh, if we hit that, we get that. No, you will get that just because Putin is a maniac. And it ignores the fact that it's already happened. And in the last week, how we started the conversation, uh, Kharkiv was hit brutally by missiles. Kiev was hit. And actually a higher proportion of those missiles and drones got through and harmed civilians. Um, if you go back to Christmas, around 80-90% being shot down. This week it was closer to 50%. And that is simply because people have 
you know, preemptively feared what Russia might do, and they've changed their behaviours, uh, you know, because of the bully and their threats. Um, and people really need to grow out of that and realise that Russia is is just that. I mean, a lot of its strength is fake. Uh, a lot of its so-called truths and values are fake and hollow, uh, and that actually it is rather vulnerable and fragile. And we shouldn't be afraid to push and it over. Very, and it's very dangerous if left untreated. It will not, like, if you sacrifice Ukraine and you satisfy what it wants in this part of the world, you will not achieve normal Russia. You will not get normal Russia. It's a very ill society at the moment that needs to be um, saved. And to save it, we need to perform some active things. Exactly. Not triage, it's major surgery. Territory, uh, remove Putin's regime and help democratize these huge territories, which perhaps will lead to the dissolution and many new countries appearing. That's a normal process. And, and, and necessary, and actually that's beneficial for the people who live on that territory as as well, I think. You know, and we're... for those who want to trade and get gas or other natural resources, all of that will be uh, um, open and with less uh, like blackmail and manipulation that Russia uses now. Well, Anna, I know you've got uh, you've got other calls and stuff to get on to, uh, and uh, it's been, as always, a, an incredible delight talking to you. I know we could probably do this all day, and heads up for people on the channel, we might actually do that. So uh, watch this space. We're going to sort of think about how we can uh, advocate more strongly for Ukraine and uh, what format, uh, say, on YouTube could really help that along. So, uh, yeah, if we come up with something concrete, we will, of course, share it with our audiences. But, Anna, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for doing all this and providing uh, our army of supporters with really good arguments to think about and to uh, say uh, to the people who make decisions. And uh, also, I would like to greatly thank the people of Great Britain because we feel like your support very much, honestly. And one of the most important things for me personally as a Ukrainian that I do not need to persuade you, you clearly see what is wrong. And it reminds me of uh, the times back at the start of the Second World War, where the decision of Great Britain was perhaps vital and decisive for the rest of Europe. So thank you once again for being with us. And thank you to all the other beautiful people who support Ukraine. We have to win this war. It's an existential fight, not just for us, but for the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Slava Ukraine. Herwam Slava.